Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for May 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is the review of the critical care literature for the last month. So let's start with an article in Critical Care Medicine, a randomised controlled trial of regional citrate versus regional heparin anticoagulation for continuous renal replacement therapy in critically ill adults. So maintaining the circuit in continuous renal replacement therapy, CRRT, is a big issue as clotting reduces efficacy of solute clearance, loses blood and is time consuming and expensive. The use of regional circuit anticoagulation with heparin and protamine to stop the circuit clotting while minimising the risk of bleeding due to systemic effects is popular. The question remains, is citrate calcium or heparin protamine a better choice for regional circuit anticoagulation? Both have been shown to be effective and both are commercially available in premixed preparations. So this prospective multi-centre parallel group RCT conducted in seven ICUs in Australia and New Zealand provides an answer. They enrolled 212 critically ill adults with acute renal failure requiring CRRT and expected to need greater than 24 hours in ICU to either citrate with calcium reversal or heparin with protamine reversal. They report that the groups were well matched at baseline. There were 857 study circuits used. Now the primary outcome was functional circuit life. Circuits were stopped for one of a number of reasons. Transmembrane pressure greater than 300 millimeters of mercury, visible clot obstructing flow, blood pump unable to rotate due to clot, or other. Heparin protamine circuits were more likely to experience clotting than citrate calcium circuits. That's a hazard ratio of 2.03, p-value of less than 0.0005. The median circuit life was 39.2 hours for citrate compared to 22.8 hours for heparin, a difference of around 17 hours. Again, significant. There was no difference in change in cytokine levels over 72 hours. There was no difference in ICU length of stay or hospital mortality or red cell units transfused. There were more adverse events in the heparin group. There were 11 versus citrate group 2. So in summary, this study reports that regional citrate calcium anticoagulation is superior to heparin protamine anticoagulation for the prolongation of filter life during CRRT and is associated with fewer adverse effects. Next, we've got two studies looking at high-flow nasal oxygen cannula compared to non-invasive ventilation. The first one looks at hypoxemic patients after cardiothoracic surgery and is published in JAMA, the BIPOP study group. So the use of non-invasive ventilation as a means of respiratory support post-extubation in adult cardiac surgery is common practice. There is increased interest in high-flow humidified nasal cannula as they are cheaper, simpler, 
they have better patient tolerance and there are theoretical benefits. So BIPOP was a non-inferiority multi-center RCT. 830 adult patients who had undergone cardiac surgery and had failure of spontaneous breathing trial or successful spontaneous breathing trial and a risk factor for post-extubation respiratory failure or successful spontaneous breathing trial followed by failed extubation were randomized to high-flow humidified nasal cannula or BiPAP with an HME. The primary outcome was treatment failure classified as reintubation using predetermined criteria and the result was that high-flow humidified nasal cannula was not inferior to BiPAP. So treatment failure occurred in 22% of the high-flow group compared to 21% in the BiPAP group. There was a risk difference of 0.9%. There was no difference in the median time to treatment failure. It was one day for both in reintubation rates or change to other study treatment. There was a difference in premature discontinuation of BiPAP. It was 3.6% first premature discontinuation of high flow, which is 1.4%. The secondary outcomes, PF ratio was increased over the first three days for both, but was higher for BiPAP. The respiratory rate was higher for BiPAP, and there was no difference for any clinical or adverse event outcomes. So in summary, this RCT found that high flow humidified nasal cannula is not inferior to BiPAP for the treatment of post-extubation hypoxemia in a selected group of higher risk adult post-cardiac surgical patients. The assumption that NIV is the safe control treatment as opposed to low flow oxygen is discussed by the authors and overall this study supports the use of high flow humidified nasal cannula as a simpler and safe first line treatment. The second high flow humidified nasal cannula oxygen study looked at acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and is published in the New England Journal of Medicine by the Reva Network. So this study was a multi-center RCT conducted in 23 ICUs in France and Belgium. 310 adult patients were enrolled and they had to have all four of a respiratory rate greater than 25, a PF ratio greater than 300, uh, PACO2 less than 45, and they were excluded if they had hypercapnic respiratory failure, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, asthma, or chronic respiratory failure exacerbation, hemodynamic instability, GCS less than 12. Patients were randomized to one of three groups, standard oxygen, that was a non-rebreather mask at greater than 10 litres a minute, aiming for SATs greater than 92%. Two, high flow humidified nasal cannula. This used the OptiFlow. This flow started at 50 litres per minute and it was adjusted for SATs greater than 92%. Or three, non-invasive ventilation. And that was set with pressure support to achieve an expiratory tidal volume of 7 to 10 mils per kilo peep of 2 to 10 centimetres of water, aiming for sats greater than 92%, and had to be applied for at least 8 hours per
per day. Patients were well matched at baseline and community acquired pneumonia was the main cause. So the primary outcome, the proportion of patients requiring intubation within 28 days of randomization with pre-specified intubation criteria. The sample size was estimated on intubation rate of 60% in the standard group with an 80% power to detect a 20% difference in the primary outcome. The result was a 28-day intubation rate of 38% in the high-flow group versus 47% in the standard oxygen group versus 50% in the non-invasive ventilation group. Post-hoc analysis of the subgroup of patients with a PF less than 200 millimeters of mercury reported significantly lower 28-day intubation rate with high-flow humidified nasal cannula which remained after adjustment for bilateral pulmonary infiltrates, respiratory rate or cardiac failure as factors. Secondary outcomes, raw ICU and hospital mortality were different between groups and the 90-day risk of death remained significantly lower in the high-flow nasal cannula group after adjustment for SAPs and history of cardiac insufficiency. VFDs at 28 days were higher for high-flow and there was no difference in other adverse events. So in summary, this RCT found that the proportion of patients requiring intubation was the same with high-flow humidified nasal cannula versus standard oxygen versus non-invasive ventilation in a select group with acute respiratory failure. There are post-hoc secondary outcomes that raise the possibility of HF being advantageous. Let's go to critical care medicine with a study neurological outcomes and post-resuscitation care of patients with myoclonus following cardiac arrest. The prognostic value of myoclonus, brief involuntary twitching of a muscle or a group of muscles, after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is debated, particularly in the environment of therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management. Status myoclonus, which is coma with sustained bilateral muscle twitching of greater than 30 minutes, is associated with poor outcomes, while Lance-Adams syndrome describes an intention myoclonus that occurs later in awake patients isn't. The lesions associated with myoclonus include cortical and subcortical injury, and although EEG discharges are often seen in status myoclonus, it is unclear if epileptiform discharge is associated with a different prognosis. So this observational registry study from 34 sites in Europe and the US was conducted looking at a 10-year period, 2002 to 2012, and 2,500 patients admitted to ICU after out-of-hospital or in-hospital cardiac arrest with a GCS less than 6. They collected 87 data points relating to characteristics, comorbidities, cardiac arrest factors and outcomes. So in terms of the cohort characteristics and outcomes, 19% of the cohort were observed to have myoclonus and patients with myoclonus that had a poor outcome were older 
more likely to have had a systole, more likely to be unwitnessed, longer total ischemic times, lower GCS motor scores, and less likely to receive neuromuscular blockade. 79% of myoclonus patients had EEG monitoring, and 55% of them had epileptiform activity, with 27% having status epilepticus. 9% of myoclonus patients were CPC1 or 2 at hospital discharge, and in this group, 84% had no epileptiform activity on EEG. Most patients with myoclonus had a poor outcome, although 89% died due to withdrawal at a median of 5 days post-resuscitation, and 25% were withdrawn on less than 3 days post-resuscitation. The myoclonus patients with good recovery had a median ICU length of stay of 8 days. So of the 374 patients with EEG monitoring and myoclonus, 2% of the patients with epileptiform activity reached a CPC of 1 or 2 at discharge, and all 5 of these 2% were cooled to 33 degrees Celsius. 15% of patients without epileptiform activity reached CPC 1 or 2 at discharge. So in summary, myoclonus after cardiac arrest occurred in 19% of patients. Approximately 80% of these patients had EEG monitoring and about half of them had epileptiform activity. If patients have myoclonus, 15% of those without epileptiform activity have a good outcome, while only 2% of those with epileptiform activity have a good outcome. The authors finish up with a question, which is, if the pattern of longer ICU length of stay in the myoclonus cohort that had a good outcome is a reason to observe these patients for longer rather than withdraw at 3-5 to five days. Okay, let's go to long-term frailty and health-related quality of life among survivors of critical illness, a prospective multi-centre cohort study published in Critical Care Medicine. So can the concept of frailty be applied to critical illness and explain, at least partially, the impaired health outcomes in survivors of critical illness? So frailty is a multi-dimensional syndrome characterized by loss of physiologic and cognitive reserves that predisposes to increased vulnerability and unfavorable outcomes, often following relatively minor stresses. Frail persons have more falls, unplanned hospitalizations, disability and death. This multi-center prospective cohort study conducted from February 2010 to July 2011 in Alberta, Canada, looked at patients over 50 years of age who were admitted to ICU for greater than 24 hours. They defined frailty using the clinical frailty score and measured confounders of association between frailty and health-related quality of life. So they enrolled 421 patients of which 86% survived to 6 months, 72% to 12 months. 
pre-hospital frailty, which they defined as a clinical frailty score greater than 4, was present in a third of patients. They received similar intensity of organ support. However, they had longer duration of hospitalization, 30 versus 18 days, higher in-hospital mortality, 32 versus 16%, and were less likely to return home independently, 22 versus 44%, than non-frail patients. Health-related quality of life, which was EQ5D and EQ visual acuity scale, at 6 and 12 months was lower in frail patients and both were lower than the general population. There was gradient worsening in EQ VAS scores at 6 and 12 months when stratified by increasing clinical frailty scores, that is, worsening frailty. And finally, by 12 months, frail patients had worsened slightly while non-frail patients had improved. So in summary, a third of ICU critically ill patients were frail before ICU, and these frail patients had a higher mortality and a worse health-related quality of life in the year after critical illness than non-frail patients. In addition, frail patients showed little improvement in this year, with the most frail deteriorating over this period. This is not surprising, but has not been described before, and suggests conversations and planning of recovery after critical illness should consider frailty and may require multi-dimensional support. Okay, so let's finish up with two studies in the New England Journal of Medicine. The first, permissive underfeeding or standard enteral feeding in critically ill adults. The ideal caloric target for critically ill patients remains elusive. Theoretically, attenuating malnutrition and protein catabolism in the hypermetabolic state of critical illness should improve outcomes. However, observational and interventional trials of higher enteral or early parenteral delivery of nutrition does not really support this. So perhaps caloric restriction may be beneficial. This is biologically plausible with evidence in other species of prolonged lifespan and beneficial effects on longevity biomarkers in humans. And there is some evidence in critical illness to support this lower morbidity with hypocaloric nutrition, similar outcomes with trophic feeds and acute lung injury. So this is the PERMIT trial, a prospective seven-center unblinded pragmatic RCT in Saudi Arabia and Canada and it occurred from November 09 to September 14. They enrolled 894 critically ill adults who were eligible if they were fed enterally within 48 hours after ICU admission. They were randomized to one of two regimes of non-protein calories. So permissive underfeeding, 40 to 60% of calculated caloric requirements using the Penn State equation, or standard enteral feeding, 70 to 100%. It was continued for up to 14 days, ICU discharge, initiation of oral feed, death or palliation. Protein was 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilo per day in both groups, uh, and the permissive group received additional protein and normal saline or water to ensure the two groups re received the same fluid volume and protein. Baseline characteristics were similar, 97% were ventilated. The intervention was delivered. The permissive underfeeding group received 46 
plus or minus 14% of their calculated caloric requirement versus the standard who got 71 plus or minus 22%. The primary outcome was 90 day mortality and the permissive underfeeding group it was 27.2% versus standard 28.9% relative risk of 0.94. So there was no difference in the unadjusted or adjusted hazard ratio and Kaplan-Meier shows no difference in the probability of survival between the groups. In terms of secondary outcomes, there was no difference in SOFA scores, nitrogen balance, CRP, renal and liver function, CO2, HB, ICU-free or ventilator-free days. Post-hoc analysis reported a lower incidence of renal replacement therapy in the permissive underfeeding group. So in summary, this large, well-designed RCT reports no difference in outcomes when non-protein calories are delivered at moderate amounts, 40-60% to 60% of recommended, compared to full amounts in a population of critically ill patients able to receive early enteral nutrition and who received equivalent protein and fluid. So, make what you want of that. And the last study for the month a trial of short-course antimicrobial therapy for intra-abdominal infection in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, complicated intra-abdominal infections are a problem ICUs and intensivists are very accustomed to dealing with. If we accept that source control, resuscitation and early administration of appropriate antibiotics is important, there are still areas of management that are not clear, like duration of antibiotics. Traditionally, empiric antibiotics were delivered for 7 to 14 days until evidence of inflammation had resolved. More recently, it has been suggested shorter courses should suffice, i.e. 3 to 5 days, and current guidelines, including those published jointly by the Surgical Infection Society and the Infectious Disease Society of America, recommend a treatment course of 4 to 7 days, depending on the clinical response. Despite this, observational studies report 10 to 14 days as the typical duration of therapy. One of the reasons for this is the 20% rate of clinically infectious complications after treatment cessation, although this is often due to progression of the original disease or inadequate source control. So this is the Stop It Study to Optimize Peritoneal Infection Therapy trial. This prospective interventional open-label RCT was conducted at 23 sites in the US and Canada from August 08 to August 13. The patients were adults with complicated intra-abdominal infection and either fever, increased white cell count or GIT dysfunction due to peritonitis leading to a more than 50% decrease in diet, who had undergone an intervention to achieve source control. They were randomized to fixed duration of antibiotics. Antibiotics were given for four days after index source control procedure or a control group who got antibiotics until two days after the resolution of physiological abnormalities related to SIRS. The baseline characteristics were similar. In terms of intervention, 82% of the intervention group 
adhere to the protocol and 73% of the control group adhere to the protocol. And in the intervention group, all the protocol violations were due to treatment for longer than the protocol due to ongoing SERS or new infection. So the primary outcome was a composite outcome of surgical site infection, recurrent intra-abdominal infection or death. And it was 21.8% in the intervention group versus 22.3% in the control group, an absolute difference of minus 0.5%, p-value 0.92. And the Kaplan-Meier analysis showed no difference in the time to primary composite outcome. There was no differences in the rates of individual components of the primary outcome, although the diagnosis of surgical site infection and recurrent intra-abdominal infection occurred later in the control group. The median duration of antimicrobials was four days in the intervention group versus eight days in the control group. That's an absolute difference of four days, p-value of less than 0.001. And there were significantly fewer antibiotic-free days at 30 days in the control group. There was no difference in rates of extra-abdominal infections, C. diff, or secondary infections with resistant pathogens. So in summary, this RCT demonstrated the use of fixed course of four days of antibiotics compared to a traditional longer course based on resolution of abnormal physiology resulted in similar outcomes in patients with complicated intra-abdominal infections who had undergone an adequate index source control procedure. It is arguable that the traditional approach led to a longer time to recognition of infectious complications and prolonged therapy. In both groups in this study, the rate of infectious complications was 20%, suggesting that irrespective of the duration of initial antibiotics, there is a complication rate of around 1 in 5 that will occur. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club for the month. Come to the website and have a look around, otherwise we'll see you next month. Thank you.